there's great promise for, for ketones and for ketogenic diet, but it could also hurt people if people misapplied it. We don't know, or it may have no effect at all. It could just be the animal models and it has nothing to do with the human cancer. But if you say it has animal models have nothing to do with the human cancer or the negative effects, then you also have to say it's animal models have nothing to do with cancer or the positive effects. So what we really need are RCTs. In the meantime, if you're convinced by the Verdon Newman study that you're going to start supplementing with ketones every day, go ahead. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. For this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast, I'm excited to welcome Kevin Bass. He's one of the most loud and controversial voices on nutrition on social media today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So I, I think we talked a little bit about what we want to talk about this program. I think there's a lot of interest areas that we overlap, but perhaps my sense of being a follower and a fan and, and reading a lot of the work that you've done and also the interactions you've had with the broader Twitter and nutrition community, it's been an interesting phenomenon. I mean, you've built up quite a following. There's no other two ways to put it. You've built up quite a reputation. You're not afraid to challenge dogma, I would say, on any side. And it's cool to see you be a loud, singular voice. So credit to you on not being afraid to step up and debate and be open to discourse. But I would say that most people don't know too much about your background other than kind of the Twitter bio of MD, PhD students, I think towards the wrapping up kind of the PhD side of the house. And also sounds like you've done quite a bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but just, you know, reading a little bit of your background and studying, I mean, you've quite have a quite a deep history with a number of diets personally, as well as medical training through your undergrad and your postgraduate medical PhD program. So it probably makes sense to start a little bit from where you come from, who is Kevin Bass the human rather than the Twitter phenomenon. When I was younger, I had a lot of medical problems. And I think this is really sort of where I got interested in medical science and nutrition, or at least this is the origin of that. And during this period, I received all sorts of treatments and lots of misdiagnoses. And it actually had kind of a psychological toll in the longer term because long-term chronic physical illness can undermine you in that respect as well, socially and all sorts of other ways. So that was from about age eight to 16 until we figured out what was going on. And that's a whole nother story. But as part of that, though, at the end of that, I became very suspicious of doctors. And actually, because I was an intellectual kid, I've always been very curious and I've read a lot. I also was very suspicious of science and even modern technology and modern world. And then I went on to the university and in many ways that sort of sharpened that sense of things. So I started out by majoring in philosophy and anthropology and I stuck with the anthropology degree uh, about after the first year of partying because everybody parties and fritters away their first year. But then I was like, oh God, I got to do something. I got to do something serious. So I decided to also major in biology because I was like, maybe if I do medicine, then I can change the things that I think are wrong, or at least I can understand them better and criticize better. 
But then at the end of college, I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do. I really don't like medicine and I don't think I can change it in the ways that it needs to be changed. People are fundamentally unhealthy because of lifestyle reasons and all this treating of symptoms doesn't actually help people um, in in the fundamental problems that are afflicting them. So we basically just have this whole system of agricultural system making people more sick and then the medical system, which is not actually dealing with the root problem, just treating the symptoms and pharmaceutical companies fueling that. And then academics are sort of in the medical model. So all together, it just looks like this whole system of people profiting off of sickness. That was my point of view. I think you can certainly look at it that way. Things changed a little bit later on, though. So while I was taking time off, I worked a little bit in anthropology. I didn't like that so much. And then I started working in biology. Anthropology is kind of a problem because just like medicine and biology, I thought anthropology was very stiff and it had its own perspective. It's like definitely a certain kind of left-wing politics, at least a lot of the cultural anthropology. Whereas I just wanted to figure out what was actually the case and what was not the case instead of taking the data and trying to make it say what you wanted to say. So it sounds like you grew up very skeptical. You're not afraid to challenge authority and you kind of had a rebel instinct from an early, early age. And it's pretty interesting because it sounds like you had a really steady upward slope where you could see a lot of folks that I knew at that were somewhat rebellious don't end up in a prestigious MD, PhD program, which is a very challenging program. I mean, it's an interesting slope where when you're 16, it sounds like people didn't know you were going to graduate college, but now you've yeah. almost, it sounds like, went from completely anti-institutional, almost a rebel into one of the more challenging, more prestigious programs within structured institutional academia. I mean, what would you say catalyzed that 180 there? Whenever you're in that sort of position where you're dealing with a lot of suffering and stress, and it happens over a really long period of time, over an eight-year period from the time you're eight years old, that shapes your values, that shapes your outlook, that shapes the way that you see the world. And when you can resolve that, then you can sort of, in my case, I felt like I was able to reinvent myself and start out from scratch. So I feel like in some ways my life started over between the age of 16 and 18 and then I had to redo everything over again. So from that experience, I remained skeptical, but I think I got a sense of possibility that I didn't see before. And I was also trying to make up for lost time and a feeling, especially early on, that I felt like I had been robbed of something. And I wanted to show everybody else and to some degree myself that that was valuable, that I could do something uh, meaningful with my life. So it's like kind of a chip on the shoulder and you're like, okay, totally. I spent for 16 years of my life dealing with medical issues and that sap will to accomplish in traditional sense. And now it's like, okay, I've resolved that. Now let's see how where the sky is kind of the limit and I can accomplish in the traditional context. Fascinating. Can you talk us through why did MD, why did PhD make sense at the time? Because, you know, one could say, hey, you could be just an MD. You could just be a PhD. You could be an entrepreneur. You could be just a health influencer that doesn't necessarily have the advanced degrees, but is speaking to tens, hundreds, millions of people as a health expert, which we will, you know, I'm sure talk about. What drew you to MD, PhD specifically? And was there a research problem? Was there a scientific question that drove that decision? Kind of thinking about my academic career, I would say that there's almost like two types of people that consider PhD. It's like you either 
kind of grew up in a system where more degrees is better. And it was kind of like the de facto choice. And I think that might not necessarily be the optimal way to enter a PhD because again, it's like five, six plus years of your life in a ne not necessarily glamorous position. Or I think there are some people that just had like a scientific question, whether that's a biology question or a computer science problem. They're like, I want to solve this. And the PhD is the best avenue for me to solve it. So maybe a couple of questions all in one there. What was your approach going to the MD-PhD program? Why was that the choice? Was there a burning scientific question? Or was it, hey, I think this is a platform that allows me to eventually do what is my master, my magnum opus? I made a decision, you know, I may not be able to like change the world in this gigantic way that I want to, but maybe helping one person at a time might be meaningful. And even though it's using medication sometimes, maybe that's still something useful, like if I can make people's lives better. And I think that that way of thinking about things was something of a turning point for me in becoming a little more pragmatic. So I went the straight MD route and... I did that for a year. I did really well in med, med school. I actually loved it. I loved med school. I know a lot of people say it's terrible. I loved it because it's the same grind, you know, it's like the Goggins thing, but for, you know, science. So I just loved like studying 12 hours a day, just working all the time. It was just the way to challenge myself. And I did well. We did so much information and so many diseases, so many drugs, so many side effects, so much information about how to diagnose things that in order to get by med school and actually in order to do well, in order to get A's, in order to get really high grades on the step exams, the standardized test that you needed to be a to practice as a doctor. Actually, you need to get really high scores to get into a good residency. You actually have to like try not to be curious. Like if you have a question that's like, oh, what about this? Like, let's look this up. You have to like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep grinding through and studying all these things. So you actually have to be intentionally become a less curious person to do well. So you have to cover a mile wide, but two inches deep. And if yes. you're driving a mile down, essentially it's wasted effort because no one's quizzing you on the 500 meter deep level of diabetes. They want you to learn about diabetes, cancer, arthritis, atherosclerosis, Everything. all weird, at once. Rare genetic diseases that you'll never see, weird infections in third world countries you'll never see. And you have to learn all the details on all of those, how to treat all of those, everything. Okay. And then the mechanisms above all of those and like, why do they, what are the like the minute characteristics? And so midway through the second year, I was just like, you know what? I don't know if I can do this. You know, of course, medicine is very intellectually challenging and understanding all the physiology is very important, et cetera, et cetera. But again, you don't get to go super deep on things. And I felt like that part of me was missing and I couldn't see myself working for like 80 hours a week for the next 10 years. Is it because they, they want to haze people out? They want to weed people that don't have the dedication, the fortitude, the discipline to grind and memorize and study? I mean, is that one steel man argument of why medical school curriculum is like that? Or is it like they just think that they're going to scattershot you with enough information that some of it kind of sticks and it's kind of like sitting in the residual back of your mind that if you kind of come across it, you might remember, oh, that's lecture in this textbook. I, I can look at it. I mean, one would hope that medical school deans aren't saying, hey, I, we want to make it inefficient training system for doctors, right? Like I'm assuming good faith from them trying to make the best possible doctors. It's really the standardized test people who are to a very substantial degree determining the medical school curriculums. And so to address like, are they trying to weed people out? They weed people out before med school. They don't weed people out during med school. I think there's 180 something people in my class and like one person failed. And I think it might have something to do with what you're talking about, which is that they want to make sure that if you do by chance see this rare disease, maybe it'll you'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, studying this for an hour. And 
I think that's not going to happen in the vast majority of cases. Yeah. And I want to talk about your scientific personality because I think in one-on-one conversation, I think you are very nuanced, specific, careful. And I think it's interesting to juxtapose that to some of your reputation online and explore that a little bit. And then from there, let's talk about specific, interesting areas of science. So um, PhD first, I think would be interesting to get a level set of what got you excited about the PhD program. I wanted to think deep about things and that's who I am. So my perspective on science has really changed substantially since I started the PhD program as well. Eventually I got in this lab that I'm in now. This guy really resonates with me a lot. The PhD advisor I have, he's super passionate about the science. He loves the the little mechanisms and the nuances of everything. But somehow even my sort of alter ego during this period was developing for the first part of the PhD. I was like kind of natural health, kind of like the dietary guidelines are wrong and everybody needs to live natural, needs to live like our ancestors, which is a good starting point for a lot of people. But that was my perspective. And then slowly over the course of the PhD years, I became a lot more interested in a lot of traditional biomedical concepts. What are the mechanisms? And part of that is part of the shift from me thinking like it's a further shift. It's been a long shift for me thinking we need these big radical social changes, which I think would be great if we could have them to also just thinking, okay, let's do the small things we can do to help people from day to day. And then that my, my innate curiosity eventually started jiving with that perspective. And then now I'm studying the ketogenic diet from a mechanistic point of view, almost by accident, because my advisor just assigned me this project. I was like, wow, he's assigned me ketogenic diet project. So it slowly went in that direction towards his lab. Then he gave me a ketogenic diet project. And somehow I've been somebody who's been very interested in ketogenic diet online for forever. And then now I have a ketogenic diet project that I'm going to hopefully finish my PhD with. I've just been really lucky to get that. You never can necessarily connect the dots moving forward, right? I think that's like the Steve Jobs quote, but it kind of makes sense in terms of where you get to. And I think it's like an interesting macro observation where the ketogenic diet, I would say, is one of the most talked about controversial diets in discussion today. And I would say that like within the sort of low carb keto community or just the broader nutrition community, you're definitely one of the most well-followed controversial voices in the space. And I think people that might not be following you that closely come off thinking that you're very anti-keto, but it's quite illuminating that you are studying the ketogenic diet as a major component of your PhD and therefore have like a very nuanced, deep, hopefully, right? Like you actually know what you're doing. And you actually have a deep, nuanced understanding of the mechanisms and where the applications are. So I think that's like an interesting area to unpack because I think we've talked a few times on uh, offline or on DMs. And I think you have a very nuanced perspective. Is this like something from a science communication perspective or stylistic perspective, would you say that like other folks that are thought leaders or spokespeople within the keto community sometimes conflict with you or like you guys have arguments online? Do you think that's just the nature of social media? Do you think it's a nature of you reacting towards some of the radicalism that you see going out with popular science communication where people aren't nuanced enough, not scientific enough, not caveating enough around some of the claims around and excitement around the ketogenic diet. I mean, maybe another way to just sort of encapsulate the question nicer is that my understanding of your thoughts is that you're not antithetical to keto. I think maybe a place of middle ground is that 
there are definitely exciting areas of research and applications of the ketogenic diet for certain things. And it's clearly, I think, why there's a lot of research in the area. And partly, you'd be curious to see what your research direction on the ketogenic diet is driving towards. What do you think people are overhyping or overstepping or crossing the line on where you have a very visceral sort of reaction towards. And it sounds like there's definitely something that came from you being almost on the radical side and being cut from that cloth and now almost going yeah. to the other side. So I'm curious yeah. to just sort of unpack the academic hat on when you're a researcher and then the social media presence as someone that's engaging in the public discourse around nutrition and diets and all of that. Are you playing different hats for different roles? How does this come together full circle between the MD, PhD, Kevin Bass versus the social media nutrition thought leader and almost, I would say, a, a polemic or, a, or a, to, to, to spark conversations? I can say that what I have seen in my life is with the people who are really successful, they have really focused on building a strong social network. And so after I graduated, I lived with a guy who's now doing an MD PhD at Harvard. And he, of course, he's very talented, but his social network helped him a lot and the opportunities that he got through that. So for me, that was something I really wanted to build on social media. And that's because I wanted to hopefully make an impact in the world. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. Whenever people say things that don't make sense, that bothers me innately to a large degree, especially experts. This has bothered me for a really long time. Whenever experts say things that don't make sense, I'm like, you're an expert. You should know how not to say things that don't make sense. So wanting to do something on social media combined with my innate sort of feeling irritated at experts saying things that were wrong, it was a good mix. So when we think about Tim Noakes and Tim Noakes's massive popularity on social media, I think the reason he's massively popular is not because he necessarily chose to be popular. It's because social media and Tim Noakes fit together very well. From the angle of defending nuance and caveats and truth and all that stuff, good method that fits me very well on social media to be visible doing that. That fits my personality. So that would be my answer. The context is that social media has changed the way we consume media and it's changed the way we consume media because it's driven by clicks and advertising. So the old media was subscription-based. The new media is more click-based. It Actually, before the subscription-based media in the early 20th century, it was also kind of click-based, like people on the street corner would yell out with their newspapers and try to get you to buy them. And the most sensational newspaper is the one that get bought, which is why you had a lot of what was called yellow journalism in the early 20th century and late 19th century. And they actually ended up starting wars and could be very unhealthy for our society. So we're back to that. <laughs> or we never left it. We just thought we left it. We thought we left it. But now that it's click-based and now it's not subscription-based anymore where the companies can be like, well, what subscription is you're going to give us money no matter what. So we're just going to try to do the right thing. Now it's click-based. Everybody's vying for attention. So now I'm emerging in that sort of media environment. So how is that any different from what I do in the lab? Yeah, for sure. Because if you go about doing things in the lab in a way that's not pleasant, you're not going to do well as a scientist because it's relationship based in science. And so I make a firm distinction between if I'm talking to a legitimate scientist who's actually really trying to do real science, it's all good because we're both trying to do real science. But if I'm talking to somebody who's not a real scientist, it's not good. And I think actually that's the way that I think I should be so that people know that this is not an equal debate. 
So I try to not have equal debates with people who I don't think are scientists who are asking legitimate scientific questions or who are not in a scientific mode of thinking, like questioning their own beliefs, trying to find the holes where the people who are advocating. So I think actually me in both of those situations, but I talk to people who sell misinformation very different than I talk to people who are legitimate scientists. In those cases, I try to have the best, most cordial relationships possible, right? Because that's what my scientific career will depend on. It sounded like you had some instinct that social media, building a strong network was valuable for your friend that's at Harvard. You wanted to tap into it. And I think you had this irreverent, either bravery or naivete or something that allowed you to stand up to folks with time more authority to build a following around calling people out. Is that that's the right way you think about it? Which, which I think actually is like an important role where my lens on a lot of this is that science is not an appeal to authority in the sense that like if you have a lot of degrees in publication, it doesn't mean you're untouchable. I think it means mm -hmm. that, yes, someone with a lot of credentials theoretically should have the best mastery of the science, of the data, of the evidence, and therefore mm. they quote unquote win based on the truth. Yes. But if they don't live up to that standard, I think it is perfectly fine to challenge why their thinking is that way. I think it would be remiss to assume that the science today is true. I'm sure back in Newtonian times, back in Galileo times, they thought that they probably yeah. knew a lot. And I think yeah. we think we know a lot, but clearly there's going to be some X percent of science that we think is true today that's not going to be yeah. true in 100 years. So totally. I think we have to have that humbleness that the experts today probably, like, I think directionally are right on a lot of things, but there's going to be corrections and all of that. So to me, I think reflecting on, like, how you think about it, like, I don't think the role of challenging folks, that is actually very scientific to me. Science is about yes. open challenge and debate and a vigorous debate on what is true. Yes. I, perhaps people can maybe quibble on your stylistic things if you overstepped here or there. And I think I, I'm not super interested in nitpicking specific arguments and whatnot. But my main point is that to me, the challenge of science is probably the most integral part of science. Science is not like this dogma of like, hey, I am the master, you listen to me. If you're putting yourself out there, then you have to be okay for people asking questions. I love putting out an idea and then having somebody else hear what they think about that idea, tell me I'm right or wrong. If I'm right, then we can sort of build on that and start with the next step of the next idea and then sort of build up a big picture. If I'm wrong, we can get rid of that idea and then go a different direction. And my best conversations, my best friends have been people who, with whom I can, I can do that. We can just argue for an hour. And it's a debate, but it's very honest and open and we're calling each other's bullshit out. And I love that. And so I feel like that's the way science should be. Not all scientists think that way. In the end, it's, that's the way it has to be in the journals. It's the way it really should be. But some personalities are different than others, and some scientists' personalities don't like that as much. Like if someone that you're criticizing is the editor of the publication that you want to publish in, then you don't want that, right? There's definitely a politics to yes. the, academy, yeah. the, the academy, which is maybe non-obvious yes. for folks who haven't experienced that personally or don't know what kind of inner workings kind of actually look like. For sure there's a politics, and I've had many engagements with David Ludwig, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that David Ludwig is trying his best to do legitimate science. And he has produced a lot of really interesting and probably important studies about metabolism and macronutrients, perhaps food choices for weight loss and weight gain. 
And he's actually mentored me to a certain degree. Like he's told me some things that I need to do better. And I've listened to him and I listen very closely to what he says and I respect him. So whenever I talk with him and I argue with him, we argue in a very cordial way. Yep. Right. But somebody else, for example, this is just my opinion. For me, Tim Noakes, in my opinion, most of what he does is not legitimate science anymore. So for me, I don't really need to behave towards him in a cordial way. I don't want to speak for Tim or get in between the two, but I know that a lot of our listeners probably do follow Tim Noakes and we had a, a fairly popular conversation with him. So what are the different qualities that you think people step out of line with and, and why? Whether that's from a scientific publication perspective or a science communication perspective, what is that criteria? My feeling is you t have people on, you ask them questions. You never claim that you're trying to be an expert here. All you're saying is let's have different people talk and we'll sort through this and think about this. And this is all very interesting. And I think that's really cool. On the other hand, there's other podcasts where the person hosting it is portraying it as this is science and we're having all these people on, which is the real deal. And in those cases where they say things, they have these claims that are made that are not established by the evidence that's a little irritating. There's another dimension that I think is interesting about your podcast. You're interested in performance and in sort of enhancement at sort of the cutting edge of what we know. So this gets to the core of, I think, a big difference between the way I, I sometimes look at science in one way and sometimes look at science in another way. So if you're just trying to eke out the little advantages that you can and you're not 100% sure it's necessarily going to work, Sometimes it's okay to try many different things that you think are probably going to be safe and just go for it. Try, take creatine, beta alanine, a bunch of different supplements. You can add a bunch of different interventions and you can be less concerned with whether it's 100% or not. Whereas if you are really trying to, for example, make policy and give broad recommendations to everybody, you want to make sure that these interventions work or else you're just going to be recommending a huge number of different things that's going to be very costly. And a lot of those things are going to end up not working. So it's a question of what's your tolerance for false positives. If you have a high tolerance for false positives, because you're just trying to eke out those little results, you have a lot of resources, you have a lot of money, and it's going to be relatively safe to try all these different things, then you can recommend to your athletes or to whatever, a wide range of things. But if you have a low tolerance, for example, when you're talking about public policy, whenever you're making these broad recommendations to hundreds of thousands of people, and you need to make sure that you're not going to be causing harm to a huge number of people, and you need to make sure that you're not wasting a huge amount of resources and taking society in totally the wrong direction, you want to have less of a tolerance for false positives. And so I think modern biomedical science is really oriented around having very little tolerance for false positives. So if you look at the Cochrane collaboration, you look at their big reviews, they're very stringent on the criteria that they use to assess evidence. And if something doesn't look like rock solid, they're probably not going to say that it's rock solid. So that's my point of view when coming to this is like if you have hundreds of thousands of followers and you're saying like, Keto is going to prevent dementia completely, which I don't even think even if you have a huge tolerance for false positives, I don't even think you can make that statement then because I don't think there's evidence for that at all. I don't know where you would get that. But making these kinds of very strong and kind of claims to hundreds of thousands of people who it could affect in all sorts of different ways you can't even predict, that's whenever I start to get upset because then you can start to hurt people. And this goes back to my life story, right, which is that for me, doctors didn't always do a great job. And a lot of that's because the science that they were using was not that good. So I don't like to see people using science that's not that good because it can hurt people and it will hurt people. Bad science will hurt people. 
bad recommendations, diet gurus who are selling things they're not 100% sure about, but then they're going to sell them anyway, that stuff can really hurt people. And I'm passionate about that. So I'm great to have these theoretical conversations. And I'm, I would love in an academic environment or even on here to talk about, in theory, you know, keto, you know, reversing heart disease and being the panacea for illnesses and illnesses and then talking about the little details on that. It'd be great. It's a scientific conversation. But whenever you start like saying this is going to do this and you're talking to an average person who's not really interested in having a deep scientific conversation, but just wants to know how to eat and how to live their life. That's stepping over a line. That's whenever it's not a scientific conversation anymore. If I were to summarize there, like the two main sticking points that you have is folks that are overclaiming that where the evidence stands today. And I think you are right that mostly with nutrition, there isn't really strong RCT data that shows causality in basically essentially any diet, right? Like most of these studies are epidemiology, which I think we can have a conversation around like what you can take from epidemiology studies. So I think I would agree with you that it is scientifically spurious to make direct causal claims on any diet because nothing has been formally studied in RCT. So like point one, and I have sympathy towards that. And I, I guess my sub point around that is, okay, there is like interesting evidence, whether that's animal models or short-term studies that you can have some theoretical mechanisms. I think there's like nuance towards what can be exciting and what one could potentially test. But I think you're really allergic to the fact around what, which is point two, which is that you don't want to overpromise or give a recommendation that could harm people. And I think the interesting point to me is that I don't want to speak for anyone else, but like a little bit of the reason why I have some empathy towards folks that are more encouraging of alternate diets is, is I think their conclusion, which I think they have reasonable justification for, which is that the status quo is like quite terrible. Like the standard Western diet is so bad that if I could directionally push them towards keto and also just maybe vegan, maybe it's a different dietary protocol is better than the status quo. And I feel like I am generally pushing towards truth by trying to take people off of a standard Western diet. That's where I think we can have like a nuanced debate around, is that too far? Like, what is the purpose of that? Is that overpromising? Because now you're more of a dietary guru that's based on early evidence or directional evidence, but not solid gold standard RCT data. And what's our tolerance for that? And it sounds like from hearing how you're thinking about it, you have very low tolerance recommendations off of not gold standard RCT data, but maybe to steel man some of the other folks, it's like, I think they have less of a tolerance or need for gold standard RCT. And they have enough smoking gun evidence around either mechanisms around, you know, insulin or insulin resistance and, I think we can talk about some of the popular models like carbohydrate insulin model versus calories and calories out model that they have enough confidence there that they can try to recommend people investigate. But I would agree with you that you wouldn't necessarily want to sell that or proclaim that as scientific consensus. But I think it's fair to say, hey, these are interesting directions to potentially personally investigate. I will say the way that we're doing things now is terrible, right? The standard American diet is terrible. People are obese. People have diabetes. They could have a lot less cancer than they have. They could have less heart disease than they have. People could live a lot longer than they do. And I don't see it getting better in the short term because I see the same thing continuing for the foreseeable future. And that's terrible. The question is, is how would we solve that problem? And some people, 
who are interested in low carb diets will say that the ketogenic diet is the way to solve the problem. What I would say is, is if you look at the whole of evidence, ketogenic diet or maybe a low carb diet might be one way to solve the problem, but the whole of evidence suggests that in my opinion, as far as I can tell, and we could go back and forth about this, but the whole evidence suggests that there's probably multiple different ways to solve the problem. And the reason I think that's important is we need all the options open available to us because there are constraints. So a really great constraint to talk about is on animal products, right? So in the long term, if we have 7 billion, 8 billion, 10 billion people on the planet, if everybody's eating a carnivore diet, it's not going to work. We're going to have to have, we're going to have to turn Mars into a, a giant feedlot. We don't even have enough land to do that. We'd need literally like 20 earths or something. It would be ridiculous if everything was grass fed, right? Right. Like just to give everybody in the United States a carnivore diet, I actually calculated this based on current land use. It'd take like 5.5 United States. So if you use grass fed. So there's other constraints. So, so the way I'm, I'm looking at it is since you have different constraints on what you can actually do to solve this particular problem, we need all of the different possibilities open to discussion. And whenever I say possibility, I don't mean remotely possible. In my opinion, it's equally as possible because of the way I look at chronic disease. It's equally possible that a, a, a well-formulated ketogenic diet, and I don't personally think that that, I mean, and we, I could support this with evidence, but I think a non-ketogenic diet has just as much evidence for curing all of these chronic disease problems as a ketogenic diet does. And we should leave those possibilities open, especially given the resource constraints that we have. And so people are saying, everybody needs to be on a ketogenic diet. It doesn't make sense in terms of resource perspective. And it's not true scientifically that the ketogenic diet is the only way. I do think a well-formulated ketogenic diet could be an option for a lot of people, or low-carb diet could be an option for a lot of people, or even the whole population. I just think that there's other paths that are equally valid and have equal merit that could also solve the problem. Yeah, I don't try to be dogmatic on any specific diet because I don't care what other people eat really. And in a sense, like I don't make more or less money. I'm not personally insulted or less insulted if people eat vegan, keto or carnivore or whatnot. I think for me, one of the things that I always re underline is that we have different genetic baselines. We have different starting points from where our health is, and we likely have different goals of what we want to optimize for. And I think the human system has various inputs and which of nutrition is one of that. And the macronutrient breakdown is one very important yeah. input. So I, I would agree with you. I think you could get to a similar metabolic strategy with various diets, right? I think the levers to me are your macronutrients, your dietary restriction, your time restriction, you know, do you kind of do intermittent fasting or extended fasts or constant eating windows as like the two main levers that you can control? Like, I guess like there's a dietary component, like what macros do you eat? Do you eat keto? Do you eat high protein? Do you eat high carb, low carb? There's a time restriction. And then there's like a calorie, calorie count, right? Do you restrict calories or do you add libidum for calories? Like those are like the three levers you can control around nutrition. And I think a lot of the focus has been focused on just dietary restriction, right? Like keto versus vegan versus high protein. And I think we, within that lens, people forget about, okay, if you add a calorie restriction to any of those diets, that's a huge lever. Yeah. If you add time restriction to any of those things, that's a huge lever. So I think to me, it's like you could get to an overall similar metabolic outcome 
if you play with all three of those levers versus just only focus on one lever. So like in that sense, I'm like generally open to how people want to get there. And I think people have different preferences to how to get there. I agree with that about calorie restriction and macronutrients. Time restriction is interesting. I actually, from a personal point of view, try to practice early time restricted eating because I noticed like HRV and a lot of other like um, heart rate overnight is a lot better if I do that. Yep. And even if I'm not gaining weight or anything like that, it's just everything looks better if I do things that way. And it makes sense to me. I'm excited to learn more about the science, the evidence that's coming out about that though, and how important that is exactly. I do it though, and I'm sold on it from a personal point of view so far. But um, about calories versus macronutrients, it's, it's interesting. Let's talk about some of the stuff that's in favor of the ketogenic diet. Yeah, I, I love to talk about that because I think it's like there is exciting areas of research on the ketogenic diet. Like that's why you're spending like a lot of your time studying the ketogenic diet, right? If you thought this is complete crap, like I presume you wouldn't do a goddamn PhD on it. So like, what are you excited about? Like, what is the evidence that you're most excited about with keto? So let's talk about cancer, right? So I think a lot of the cancer models for the ketogenic diets haven't been that great. So a lot of times what investigators will do is they'll have a protein restriction along with the ketogenic diet. And we know from the cancer literature that protein restriction independent of ketosis causes slower cancer growth and carcinogenesis in multiple different kinds of cancer models going back to the 1940s. And still to the very day, present day, we're still studying that and showing that probably modulates the immune system, probably makes the immune system more active. They kill cancer cells more readily. And it might have something to do with like they're looking for protein, quote unquote. But that's where the science stands there. And so I'm quite skeptical of the majority of not even just ketogenic diet and cancer preclinical models, but ketogenic diet preclinical models, because a lot of them restrict protein, which has all sorts of different effects that independent ketogenic diet. That said, there was a really interesting paper. There's two interesting papers that came out in cell metabolism. I'm sure you're familiar with them. One of them was by the people who uh, Brianna is working with right now, Newman and Verdon. Mm-hmm. And they had this really awesome mouse feeding study where they fed them this ketogenic diet. And it's actually kind of a cyclical ketogenic diet because they need to make sure they didn't gain too much weight. And they sped them for two years on this diet after the mice were about one year old, whenever they started them, they fed them for two years. And one of the really interesting findings in that study, and also it was an interesting finding in the Roberts et al study was published in the same issue of cell metabolism. In both cases, in Robert et al case, they showed spontaneous cancer incidents, and there's a certain kind of cancer like histio something sarcoma. In the Verdon Newman case, it was like borderline. It looked like it could have been statistically significant if they had more mice. So, um, and in the Verdon Newman study, they had really closely matched diets. Like that was a really well done study, and I really appreciated that study. And then there's actually several other studies where they done matched diets and showed s- reduced spontaneous cancer. Or actually, I think that was a xenograft model. They had matched diets, and they showed a slower growth of xenograft model. So, so matched diets meaning matched protein load, and then they switched the fat car- fat carbohydrates. Yes. yes. Okay. Match, match protein load, but also match minerals, vitamins, all those things. Those are usually also mismatched in most of the preclinical studies. This really needs to change. This is yeah. a huge problem, in my opinion, is the diets need to be matched. It's not that hard to do. There's companies that sell them. There's professors who have recently messaged me about this and been like, what diet do you guys use to make sure that this is matched? And there's even sets of matched diets you can buy. You buy both diets at the same time. They're perfectly well formulated. They're purified from research diets. It's a company. So they should be matched. Which makes sense, right? Like 
the part of science oh is you want to isolate your variables. Okay, like you're testing one variable. Yeah, people have been pointing this out for decades in other contexts, like high-fat diet and metabolic study contexts in mice. They've been pointing out for a long time, and it's not getting fixed apparently. So maybe I'll, I'm just going to make that my drum. I'm going to beat for a while. So yeah, they did match. It was perfect. It's a beautiful study. Not only did they find lower cancer incidence, they also found this cogn cognitive benefit that was tremendous. It was just beautiful, and it's like one of the most exciting things about the ketogenic diet they can think of that particular study in both of those respects because they showed that the older mice even though they were older they were actually doing better after two years cognitively in terms of these memory tasks than the younger mice did at one year is incredible yeah. so i'm really excited about that we can talk about the alzheimer's research and like the problems with that that hasn't been shown like it hasn't been shown that ketones treat alzheimer's but that's a really great and they perhaps ketones or maybe even something like an exogenous ketone taken over the course of the lifespan could could substantially reduce aging brain aging that would be amazing and if that turns out to be the case i would be the first person to be like that is amazing we have to figure out how to make yeah. these things cheap and distribute them in the water supply you know like seriously so that's something i'm excited about um diabetes is also promising we're all seeing similar studies. And I think you're excited about very much, I would say the same studies that I think a lot of the keto people are excited about. But I think where you're more cautious and I think where you're potentially calling people out is that I agree. I think that's a very exciting, but I wouldn't necessarily claim that ketogenic diet cures cancer, ketogenic diet cures dementia, right? Is that like the main difference? I think like the data is exciting, right? I think. Yeah, it's not just that though, Rip, because on the other hand, we could talk about several other studies where they've injected beta-hydroxybutyrate into mouse models of, of breast cancer and they've seen acceleration of the breast cancer. So you didn't change macronutrients, you didn't change anything then, you just added beta-hydroxybutyrate. Well, is that because you're adding an energy source? So then it's not matched in calories, the mice aren't matched calories, could be, but they need to test that. And then there's also one mouse study where they showed acceleration of the mel melanoma. We need to make sure that when we say keto might be able to cure cancer to say like we're still in the preliminary stages. A lot of the evidence ha hasn't been great. Some of it has. And some evidence suggests that keto might not be great for cancer. Oh, yeah. And in a, a leukemia model, they did uh, Mukherjee and, and Cantley. They published it's Hopkins et al. in 2018. They showed that it accelerated a leukemia model. So there's great promise for ketones and for ketogenic diet, but it could also hurt people if people misapplied it. We don't know. Or it may have no effect at all. It could just be the animal models and it has nothing to do with a human cancer. But if, if you say it has animal models have nothing to do with the human cancer or the negative effects, then you also have to say it's animal models have nothing to do with cancer or the positive effects. So what we really need are RCTs. In the meantime, if you're convinced by the Verdon Newman study that you're going to start supplementing with ketones every day, go ahead. And that might help. You might like live five years longer than me. You may, maybe. Yeah. But we don't know. That's cool. all. That I would say is like 100% fair. I think it's like there is counter evidence within ketogenic diet for some of these indications as well. And I think you have a point there where I think when people try to make a simple statement, they over brush the negative evidence. And I think that's where you, I think you call out as unscientific, right? Like, is that like kind of like the trajectory of your thinking? If you say keto cures cancer, you're, that's just- That's wrong. Like, that's been shown by yeah. anybody. And it could be the opposite. And if you say that keto prevents cancer, if you have a really well-formulated ketogenic diet and you take it over a long period of time, I think that's going to be better for your cancer risk than being on the standard American diet. I think that's for sure. 
But does it do better than another really well-formulated diet? I would be inclined even to say like possibly and maybe even I wouldn't say I would be surprised if it didn't. But like I feel like there really is something to ketones, but we just don't. No, if you're just trying to get the squeeze out of the extra bit of performance, go for it. But yeah, it's not going to be dramatically better in improving your risk. It might be a modestly or very slightly better in increasing improving your risk than a really well-formulated non-ketogenic diet. And so people need to understand that, first off, the science isn't clear. And second, there's other options besides a ketogenic diet and really producing dramatic health improvements. And then, so we both agree that calories are important and probably it has something to do with maintaining leanness. It's super important. That's probably going to drive for most people for like the average person. Of course, if you're in Silicon Valley or whatever, and you've already got everything else dialed in, it's a whole nother ball game, right? Because then you're thinking about how can I make things even better? And that's great. But resolving the obesity epidemic, resolving the epidemic of chronic health problems, just getting calories down and getting you lean and have make sure you have enough protein, making sure you have enough nutrients and all those other things is going to be like 90% of everything. And then the question of ketogenic diet versus non-ketogenic diet might be another few percent. So that's it. That's all. I'm very concerned about the broad perspective because that's how I look at things. I've always looked at things. I just, I want society to be better. And for me, the best way to make society better is to look at the low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit is just to make people's diets a little bit better. And that should be, I mean, just to think about it also, most of the time, most people who are going to try ketogenic diet, maybe if you're very disciplined and like you and a lot of your listeners or like me, to some degree, you guys are going to be able to do the ketogenic diet a lot better. But then somebody who's in the random, not us, or who's just learning about nutrition for the first time, maybe has a lot of other things that they're doing and they're not like obsessed about nutrition like we are, adherence is going to be a lot more difficult. And so if we can just improve people's diets a little bit more and get the message out to everybody, it's not about necessarily about carbs. It's like you need to become leaner and, and that's going to be the biggest thing, most important thing that you can do. And there's a lot of different options for that. Then that's what I'm concerned about. On the other hand, there's always this other argument, the steel man argument that people need sort of an extreme belief to sort of like shake them out of their rut. And then they can sort of like focus on this stream of with blinders on, and then maybe they'll have a better chance of doing it because they have this sort of religious conviction. Yeah. And so people who are diet gurus who do have that re religious conviction can kind of convert people a lot easier. Whereas the people like me who are like, oh, I don't know this or that, then like nobody believes anything we say because we're not even sure. Right. So maybe there's some argument to be made for that. I'm not sure what the evidence is for that though. But maybe if it turns out to be the case, that poses a dilemma for me, right? Because then we actually do need people saying things in really black and white terms in the public in order to convince people so that maybe that's what we need. We need people not to tell people what the nuances. I don't even think that's a nutrition discussion. It's also just a broader news discourse, politics, everything discourse, right? I think it is. Are we moving to a world where you have to have headlines and no one cares about the nuance? And, I maybe, and that's a very distinct conversation than the science of nutrition. And I think one point that when I'm looking at the evidence behind, I think, you know, calories versus carbohydrate. I don't think there are antithetical models to think about obesity, right? Like carbohydrate insulin, like that kind of the main argument there is that carbohydrate is a primal chiasm that drives insulin, which is a fat storage hormone. That's like a dominant factor for obesity and the calories in, calories out model is more of the thermodynamics sort of argument. The more calories in, you're going to just start packing on weight. And I think sensible people agree that both models probably have something to do with the ultimate explanation, which is that if you're eating no carbohydrate, but you have a ton of calories, it's probably not optimal. 
if you are just eating pure sugar, but, but like 2,000 calories of pure sugar, that's probably not optimal. So it's like, I think finding something that works for the people that are executing it. Then I think there's an interesting argument around what is implementable for people, right? I think there's definitely, I would say, a lot of people that seem to have good success with the ketogenic diet. Sure. But there's clearly, you know, people that think that's very hard to do. And like, I wouldn't say which anecdote wins, right? I think there's definitely like a personal, whether will, adherence, personal predilection towards if that feel, if they feel good on it. That's like hard to control for. Yeah, no, I think it's super important. Like what do people actually feel good on? What do they like and enjoy and what can they sustain and whatever that is, that's great. Yep. And like I have clients who I consult with, who I give them, I tell them to eat a ketogenic diet because that's what they want to do. Yep. They want to eat a ketogenic diet. And if they want to eat an animal-based ketogenic diet, if they're losing weight on that, that's good. I always tell them that trying to substitute more uh, nuts and seeds for for meat uh, is probably going to produce better outcomes. That's, But yeah. I do believe that a ketogenic diet, if that works for people, I mean, we shouldn't tell people not to, you know. So I just want people to have all of the information that science can offer them. So that's important to me. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I want to move to the point around carbohydrate resistance or the notion around remission or cure of diabetes through a ketogenic diet. I think that's an interesting discussion point that's popped up on discussion around ketogenic diet with diabetes, Verta Health, which is a app that helps coach people through a ketogenic diet. A lot of people get really good results from it. And I think that's been published in, in incredible studies. I think that's a good body of evidence. But I think an interesting nuance there is what is the definition of a cure of diabetes versus remission? Like, I'd love to get your thoughts on the difference, the nuance between those two points and unpack that a little bit. The difference is between remission and, and reversal or remission and cure would be that with remission, you could take somebody with diabetes and carbohydrate restrict them, give them a zero carb diet. And within a few days, they could have a reasonably low average blood glucose level just because you are preventing them from having these blood sugar spikes in response to eating glucose because eating glucose will cause your blood sugar to spike if you cannot put it away the way that it needs to be put away. Yeah. So meaning if you cannot get it into your liver, you cannot get it into your muscle and keep it out of your bloodstream. So in that sense, you get remission. But then if you give them a carbohydrate bolus right after that, they'll still have a blood sugar spike and they'll still look like a diabetic again. So you're essentially treating the symptom and the symptom is a very big symptom. It's a huge symptom. Super high blood glucose levels are gonna increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. So if you treat that symptom, I mean, and also some, many other complications as well, like getting gangrene and losing nerve function and maybe even some other things that uh, maybe even dementia risk. So getting that blood glucose down is going to be great. So I think that's a wonderful intervention to use for people. If you can do that, if you can get your blood glucose down through a ketogenic diet, through carbohydrate restriction, do it. It's amazing. And you're doing yourself a real favor. But it's not the same as cure, right? So cure would be that you can do all of those things, get your blood glucose down. But when you take a carbohydrate bolus, it doesn't go back up to diabetic levels. The blood glucose level doesn't go back up to diabetic levels. Right. So the difference is on the one hand, you've treated the underlying defect in the cure case. And in the uh, remission case, you haven't, well, I don't know what you want to call underlying defect, but you haven't treated one of the underlying defects in the remission case. And the other underlying defect 
according to this guy named Roy Taylor and a, a group of people in the UK. It's something called the twin cycles hypothesis. The underlying defect, according to them, is excess fat in the liver and in the pancreas. Whenever you undergo weight loss, you can reduce this excess fat in the liver and the pancreas. And by reducing this excess fat in the liver and pancreas, you could reduce diabetes. What does excess fat in the liver and pancreas have to do with diabetes? When it's in the pancreas, it prevents the pancreas from secreting insulin and functioning properly in doing that. If it's in the liver, it prevents the liver from properly releasing and taking up glucose. So it becomes resistant to insulin. So you have both inadequate insulin production and inadequate insulin response. Yep. So if you dramatically reduce weight, maybe even only by 10%, so, but it is still somewhat dramatic. But if you do reduce your body weight by about 10%, they've shown in direct, which was published, I think, two years ago, that you can reverse diabetes in the sense that we're talking about here. Uh, about 86% of the subjects who did that, they weren't severe diabetics. I think they were only diabetic for about five years, so they, had, they weren't long-term diabetics. And they were on insulin as well. So they were more mild and, short, and hadn't been diabetic for very long. Whenever they lost that weight, then became tolerant to glucose. So that's the difference. It's important because people need to know the difference. If they're going on a, a protocol that's low carb, that isn't going to dramatically reduce their weight and they haven't tested their blood glucose, that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to just start eating carbohydrate again. They should still test. That said, if somebody is listening who is trying to lose weight and then wants to start eating carbs again, wants to start eating carbs again, you need to do it over the course of several days. You need to wait several days until you check your blood glucose again because Eating carbs the first day, you're going to get an artificially high glucose response, and then you need about three or four days on the safe side before your response to carbohydrate, if you have reversed the pathology, will become normal again. So don't think it hasn't become normal based on just one day. But yeah, that's the difference. And well, there's another interesting, important side to that. I think the evidence shows that using a ketogenic diet for diabetes is probably a good treatment approach. It doesn't say that the opposite is true. On the other hand, when you haven't eliminated the underlying defect, what does that mean? Can that cause other effects besides a lack of blood glucose control that will then, you know, maybe prevent you from achieving your maximum life expectancy? Yeah, that's something that, like, I think is worth unpacking because a very level one understanding of diabetes is that diabetes is like a blood sugar problem. And I think what you're describing is unpacking and disentangling the glucose response, the glucose spike and disposal, and then the insulin response and disposal. And resolving the glucose spike doesn't necessarily resolve your root insulin problem, whether it's insulin release or your ability to use insulin to tolerate a glucose challenge down the line. The way I think about how you're talking about it, there's a couple mechanisms, but it's much easier for people to measure blood sugar, right? Like you can finger stick and you're like, oh, like my blood sugar is low. I've cured myself. And it's like, well, it's not necessarily like you got to be nuanced about like, is the actually insulin response also correct? Where I think in the inverse problem, I think I've seen some data, I can't cite it off the top of my head, where people might have normal insulin or glycemic responses to certain foods, but their insulin levels remain very, very high. Yes. And yes. I think that's like the inverse way of describing what you're describing, which is that if you have a impaired insulin drop, you might not have like the traditional diagnostics for diabetes, but the high insulin is probably not good for certain things. And I think that's where it's a little bit of a new area of research where 
okay, you have high insulin response, but low blood sugar response. What does that imply for disease states? Like, how do you resolve that? But it sounds like the literature that you've seen is like weight loss is one of the key drivers for also repairing the insulin resistance. Yes. And I think that it's almost certainly the case that if you do have hyperinsulinemia, it's like abnormally high insulin in response to carbohydrate. That's almost certainly the case that that's really bad. Yeah. It's going to increase your risk. So that's something that people also need to be concerned about as well. And I don't know if it's necessarily the insulin causing the higher risk. It could be whatever is associated with the higher insulin. So like dyslipidemia, or there might even be other things we don't understand that well that that could be causing it. But for sure, if you have excess insulin in response to a glucose challenge, you are, I think, almost certainly at higher risk. Yeah. So yeah, totally. But the question is, is if you're still hyperinsulinemic, but you're not diabetic, if you carbohydrate restrict, does that reduce your risk from the hyperinsulinemia? So is insulin itself causal and disease? And I don't know the answer to that. I think it is to some degree. Is it mostly the insulin that's causing the, the increased disease or is it something else that's accompanying that excess insulin that's like, if you know the answer to that, Jeff, I would love to know. <laughs> I don't. I think that's open science. I, I don't think it's well studied. Because I've looked into this for cardiovascular disease because I was like, is hyperinsulinemia really the thing that's driving the excess risk from cardiovascular disease in addition to the LDL levels? And the deeper I looked into it, the more it seemed to me that we still don't understand why sort of metabolic dysfunction is causing higher cardiovascular disease. We don't understand the exact mechanisms, which I just think is so weird. It's like, shouldn't we know everything in 2019? But apparently it's unclear. But if it is the insulin to a substantial degree, then even carbohydrate restricting in that state situation might be helpful. Yeah. So I think that's where it's like interesting where it sounds like reducing liver fat and pancreatic fat is one of the key drivers to resolve hyperinsulinemia. So potentially even fat or, or carbohydrate restriction could be potentially helpful for that. But I think you would probably want to do it. But I would say like ketogenic diet is not the only way to potentially reduce intra-organ fat deposits. That's another whole issue, right? Like, yeah. so until like a couple of days ago, like four or five days ago, I thought that low carb diet didn't help with liver fat, but, and if people want to think this person is biased, I mean, just listen to this story. So Kevin Hall sent a group of us this really interesting paper from like the 1980s where they were perfusing, I think, rat livers with different substrates and, and they found, according to this paper, I really need to actually read it in more detail before saying too much, but my understanding is according to this paper, liver fat was more reduced on an isocaloric low carb diet than it was on a higher carb diet, which I thought, wow, that's very interesting because actually the human studies right now don't say one way or the other. If you read them, it seems to be the case that low carb causes less liver fat, but the more you get into the methods, you have this whole protein issue because if you add more protein, then you actually getting more protein actually independently reduces liver fat. Of course, as we talking about calorie restriction independently reduces liver fat. So the human data aren't clear, but there's indications in the mouse data or the, I think it's a rat that this is the case for a lot of these biochemical reasons a lot of people have been pointing out. So yeah, for sure. So maybe that's the case in humans as well. And in addition, it could also Maybe, so there's this whole another question of for pancreatic cells, does a ketogenic diet allow them to gain function faster than a high carb diet allows them to regain function again? So there's indications in the Vertidet data. This is one of these studies that we were talking about where we saw remission of diabetes. 
many of those patients are regaining some of their weight from after the initial weight loss, they're actually continuing to reduce their insulin needs despite no change in visceral fat. So what is the reason for that? Is it because the reduction in insulin demand is driving that or like what is the mechanism? And, and so some people think that, you know, fatty acids might be less dangerous to the pancreas than glucose. So there's these possibilities. So for sure. So maybe a ketogenic type might be the best way to reverse diabetes. So maybe in addition to calorie restriction, we would want carbohydrate restriction, but you know, still not clear. It's exciting. Yeah. Just to add a little bit of excitement there. I've also seen, I believe this is unpublished, but I think there's been some early pilot data around ketone esters reducing liver fat. I believe in Really? Humans. I, I need to double check with Oxford and see where the data is there. Yeah, humans are not. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's like definitely interesting science to unpack the full picture there. I'm curious to get your thoughts as we're looking at the keto and like I think where I, we think is exciting, where it might be a little bit, you need to pause to take a look at the potential risks. Moving a little bit to your thoughts around vegan, carnivore, your thoughts around kind of the I guess, I guess the more extreme dietary tr trends. If we talk a little bit about the Game Changers movie, which I think you had a equally visceral reaction towards like propaganda on that side of the house. But also it's a, I think you've also been fairly skeptical on folks that are carnivore who've claimed that their carnivore diet resolved all of their issues. You know, one of our recurring guests and a friend, Michaela Peterson, I think you've mentioned that you're a little bit skeptical on how her symptoms were resolved was just through carnivore. So I want to just get kind of get your thoughts on vegan carnivore, how you're sort of assessing the evidence on either and where do you think people are overclaiming and underclaiming on a couple of these like most extreme or most fatty of diets right now? The two big internet diets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So carnivore, it's really interesting. Full caveat, like I've done a couple cycles of six week blocks of carnivore. I thought it was palatable. I thought it was fine, but I don't think I need to necessarily be carnivore for the rest of my life. I think I like going to cycles of keto or carnivore, but I generally have like a well-balanced and then cycle in and out of keto. That's kind of just like my basis, if that matters to you, but like I'm generally open to experimentation. Cool. I recently did a weight cut because I was doing this jujitsu competition and I was like 17 pounds overweight and sort of near the end of it, I was advised to basically restrict fiber because if you restrict fiber, then you lose a couple pounds from the, from you poop it out. So, <laughs> so I tried kind of a carnivore ish diet near the end and this is just for a couple days. And it was very funny because I was thinking like, <laughs> I'm basically eating carnivore right now. I just thought it was so funny. But what I noticed though, was like I ate ground beef and like I felt really hungry. I feel felt like I'd eat so many pounds of ground beef. It was like delicious. And I did not feel satiated at all. Huh. Like I literally could have eaten, like I ate like a thousand calories at once. And I was like, man, I'm, and I was hungry again within like an hour or two. Right. It was weird. So maybe I just needed a steak or maybe I need to get used to it. Or maybe if I just kept going, but yeah, I noticed I felt really hungry on that. That's my only comment. I haven't done it for like a long period of time because I haven't really needed to. And I know it's a silly thing. The gut microbiome research, like well, gut microbiome is cool, but we don't really understand gut microbiome that well. The whole field itself is sort of Early. kind of a mess. Yep. So I don't really know if not eating vegetables is really going to cause my gut flora to go away. Like I don't really know that. And I've seen all these people, these anecdotes of people who have been on carnivore for a long time, they have like these amazingly diverse gut flora. And I'm just like, I don't really think I understand this, but 
I have this idea of like, maybe it will. I don't know. I just haven't had a reason to try it. Maybe I should try it just because it would be antithetical. Because that way, that would be the real scientist's approach, wouldn't it? I think we're all curious. I mean, I kind of have on plan to do a vegan keto cycle as well, just to oh, man. try vegan, all... Vegan keto. Yeah, I don't know. That's going to be very hard to do, I think, unless I'm drinking <laughs> like olive oil or something. But I think like to me, it's like the scientist ethos is to look at all the data and be generally open-minded. And I think yeah. like just from a personal experimentation perspective, I think that's kind of interesting. But as far as Michaela is concerned though, right? I don't believe that story from a scientific point of view, because if you look at the history of people making wild claims about things curing everything, it's like people have done that about everything, right? They've done that about like Christian science. They've done that about like this magical potions that they bought from this or that, you know, like people have seen remissions of their diseases. People have amazing stories about everything. So from my point of view, it's like, what is the cause of that? I'd be happy to steal man what I think is going on. I think it sounds like she has like serious autoimmune issues. I think it's like a hardcore elimination diet that got rid of yeah. plant matters or, or whatnot or polyphenols that have any triggering your autoimmune issues. And for some reason, ruminant meat doesn't trigger any autoimmune issues. And you basically have like a hardcore elimination diet that one can eat that's fairly nutritional complete and that's kind of working for her. That would be like a really concise way of explaining sure. how to resolve a lot of her symptoms. And I think it could, and it could be reasonable. And like, I think that sounds completely reasonable and that could be the truth. It's just, it's almost like hard to believe that only ruminant meat is appropriate. Like she can't eat chicken for a few days or she'll get like flare ups apparently, right? She's told me this. Yeah. It's like, why is it only beef? It's not pork. It's not chicken. It's like, and then you have this whole story of like, this is where it gets weird. It's like, they have this whole story of like, they think it's because hunter gatherers, they ate like a huge amount of meat. Like there was kind of ruminant meat, these large animals. Yeah. And so we're adapted to that. And so now they're eating the true human diet. And it's just like this whole story that just like, if it's true, if like, if the carnivore narrative is true, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. And maybe it is. It could be. It's just like for me to say, okay, yeah, I'm convinced. I would need to see like what experiments did she actually do with her diet? What symptoms did she have and how are they assessed and all those other things. And so in order to like really be sure and be like, oh, shit, I'm a carnivore now. Like I believe the carnivore narrative. We should have a bunch of cattle, all this and feed everybody with beef. And if we can't feed it with beef, we should like figure out a way to make it like whatever, like I would need to have like the hard evidence, but all I have is a story and all I'm expected to do is believe that story. And there's so many different things that could get in the way of that story being true. So I want to rule those things out before I like convert to like saying everybody should eat only meat. I feel like that's a reasonable position, right? In the conversations I had with her, I believe she like literally tried all sorts of protocols to find something that has worked for her. But I would agree with you that it's a stretch to say because of this N equals one, which I happen to maybe be more gullible or more amenable to like her personal journey through that. That doesn't mean that you transplant her story to everyone. I agree with that. That's, that's spurious. But I think it opens up at least to me that it seems quite possible that a carnivore diet is not going to kill you in a year. I feel decently confident about that statement. Sure, it's not going to kill you in a year. And it could be the true human diet, as they're saying, like they, as a lot of them think. It really could. But I don't know what the long-term effects are going to be, right? 
Like, I don't know that it's not going to cause cardiovascular disease at a higher rate. On the other hand, I feel pretty sure if they remain lean and they see in their inflammatory markers are low and all this other stuff, their risk of cardiovascular disease is going to be relatively low, probably lower than average person in America. Is that the ideal diet for cardiovascular disease or for longevity? I'm a little more skeptical of that, but I could be wrong. So it's just that I wish that they're not going to do this, but I wish that they had presented more evidence before saying that they're going to give the diet to everybody. But hey, I've told people who are my friends that have autoimmune disease, hey, why don't you try a carnivore diet? Because it sounds like, a, as you said, it's a great idea, elimination diet. It sounds like a relatively easy elimination diet to, to do instead of, as you know, about the elemental diet as opposed to that, which is like these liquids. I mean, at least you're eating food, right? Yeah, I mean, I think to say that humans were purely carnivore, I think that's probably not true from anthropological record. Right. But you would say that, like, there's probably high evidence that was, we, we definitely did eat meat as Neanderthals. I think that's well understood. I think, on the other hand, like, I think when people on the vegan side say, like, hey, we grew up as vegans, that's clearly not true. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, it sounds like you're equal level of calling out BS on either side, which I would agree with. I think clearly there's been a historical record around consumption of both animal and vegetable products. I'm somewhat interested in the notion that potentially humans could be facultative carnivores or, or, or the sense that you could primarily eat meat and then use vegetables as boosters, right? Like I think there's definitely an interesting role for just having carbs for performance or vegetables for certain therapeutic requirements. I think it's like an interesting model to kind of think about how we even evolved to the current position. I think that's interesting when you talk about like the agriculture system. I think there's also like a third, a second dichotomy around was it easier for society to scale with agriculture and farming versus animal husbandry, especially in the earlier phases of civilization development, right? It's a much easier feat a bunch of people with grain than feed a bunch of people with cows. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different interesting layers of how modern diet has evolved. And I think to me, a separate question around what is potentially optimal for the individual, what is optimal for societal development, which has to take in consideration sustainability, mm -hmm. cost, democratization of food accessibility. And I think maybe the third level, which is maybe more first world problems like morality, like is it sad that we're essentially enslaving another animal and farming it for food that's probably the most salient argument for me because like yeah it's kind of sad yeah. to eat like a pig that's pretty smart but i think the other part of me is like you know nature is hardcore like we go go into a safari you just see a lion eat a zebra and it's just like nature is tough so so i think it's an like interesting conversation we can kind of you know, explore a little bit but i want to kind of throw it to you in terms of how you think about vegan carnivore your assessment around that and a little bit of the ethical moral sustainability side of the house so if you're a junk food vegan like a really just trashy vegan diet you're going to be worse off than if you're eating the standard american diet probably so I think that's shown, that's demonstrated, at least epidemiologically, that's demonstrated. And I'm con I believe in epidemiology. If we get into that discussion, we can talk about it. I believe in that. So I believe that you don't want to just cut out meat and trash your diet. You're not going to be helping yourself. And I know a really well-known vegan who, who says the same thing to all of her patients as well. When I was traveling, I ran into a vegan who 
was just eating rice and Oreos. I'm just, and because we were traveling Southeast Asia, I'm just like. How long were they able to maintain life? <laughs> How can you do that? I think because it was in Southeast Asia where there's so much like animal products, it was hard for her to choose her food. Oh, okay. So I don't think it's like she doesn't just eat that perpetually. I think it's just because she's traveling in Southeast Asia where it's hard to get like good vegetarian or vegan food. She just was kind of eating white rice and, and Oreos. And I'm oh. just like. I guess I understand from a moral, ethical perspective, but this is not healthy. It's like not good for for from a health perspective. Yeah, that's that's scary. Like, how long was she doing that? Like four weeks or something. It's not that bad. And that's one of the problems I have with game changers. And I'm gonna hopefully write an article about this. Is that did you see it? I saw a lot of the breakdown, so I feel like I've seen it without seeing it. Well, the thing that I think was problematic about it is I don't think they emphasized the whole food part very much. I think they did sell it a lot. I'm like, you're going to have all this delicious food. And they were showing these football players eating like it looked junky to me. Right. And I don't think the message was there that you really need to be doing this whole foods style. Of course, they did have like one scene where they had that, but that wasn't the emphasis. And I feel like the emphasis was on meat elimination, which I don't think this is going to help anybody and I think could hurt a lot of people. So yeah, but of course we know for sure. I think science knows with a high level of certainty that a whole food plant-based diet, like a lot of vegetables, lots of greens with every meal. And I think you're going to be better off on that than you on the standard American diet. I think there's definitely dogma on either side. Yeah. They're the two sides of the same coin. They're just like the same thing, except like carnivores are anti-vegans basically. Like they're like, let's find some way to troll everybody as hard as we can and come up with the exact opposite of a vegan diet. I'm not saying like that's the motivation, but like that certainly is kind of like part of the the social media thing. All, all the sort of popular carnivores, I would say, have either been in the program or I'm friendly with. I think they are tongue-in-cheek kind of know they're trolling. Like, I don't think they're just like... They have to know it, man. <laughs> they know they're kind of trolling. I would say like folks like Michaela, like legit have like a medical reason, but I think yeah. some of the other folks who more for performance, I think they know they're trolling a bit. And I think they know that like some carb usage or vegetable usage is going to be fine. Like if you don't have like an <laughs> autoimmune issue, like it's fine to eat some vegetables, right? Like that's kind of my perspective where it's like, yeah, if you are somehow allergic to like lettuce, then like don't eat lettuce or whatever. Like, I guess that's pretty rare. But I'm curious to get your thoughts so that there seems to be more incidents of people claiming autoimmune issues to different plant matter. I don't know if that's because people now in social media are talking about it or if there's something changing in the environment where there's either environmental toxins that people have more of these like food allergies or food intolerances. Do you think it's more of a now people have a name for it so people can point to it and say, I have this? Or do you think there's like a broader environmental change where it seems like maybe there is some rhyme to the reason that there are more intolerances to plant matter or vegetables? Totally. I think, and that's one of the frustrating parts about this area. I would really wish they were studied more because I want to believe people about this. But hey, you know, calorie restriction can help with inflammation, right? Let's say you have an underlying autoimmune problem. If you fast, right, that's been shown for certain. If you fast, you get you see remission of your autoimmune problems so long as you're fasting. So is that part of it? Like are people who are overweight, like losing a bunch of weight and having relatively lower calorie intakes and then they're seeing these improvements? Is it that they're also excluding these compounds that are in plants? I don't know what they are in those cases and that's improving it. Is it that they're also getting more protein, which is reducing inflammation in the body? I don't know. So I wish we studied this more. I wish some of those people were really into this and could like 
do in of one crossovers, right? They would just go on a carnivore diet, count their calories, maintain relatively normal physical activity. And especially if they had something like psoriasis or something that had an objective, it wasn't just pain, but it was like an objective thing that they could show. And then they could also at baseline check their inflammatory markers. And then they go on the, they switch to the other diet and they do the same thing, you know, for a month each time. And then if they had objective, you know, characteristics, objective symptoms, and then they also tracked everything and tracked their blood markers. If they did that, that would do a huge service to everybody. And they demonstrated that and I would believe it and that would be great. But I just feel like it's testimonials. And then it's also like meet RX, this new thing that Sean Baker is doing where he's going to train people to be carnivore coaches. It's like, dude, why don't you guys do one study or a couple N of one studies? They're very hard to do because it's very hard to maintain that discipline. But if you just did that, then you would prove to everybody and then there'd be no more argument about it. But instead, they're like making money. And that's what upsets me is like it's so easy to do the studies that they need to do. But they instead are just going to like start selling this product and tell everybody through testimonial. And what if like tomorrow or next year we have like a war and like everything's interrupted and all this knowledge is wiped out and then like people forget about for 50 years and there's no documentation that's solid about this they could change the future of science and the future of the way we look at health forever just by doing a couple studies over the course of a year and that's what frustrates me it almost makes me feel like they don't really care about helping people it makes me feel like because they're not doing the basic things that they actually need to do in order to demonstrate their ideas which would help so many people, it almost feels like they don't want to. Like that's not what they want to do. They don't want to. That's not their goal. That's the big reason that I get triggered by the carnivores. It's like that's why I get really angry. It's like you guys could just do these studies and help so many people, but you're choosing to do something different. Why is that? Maybe it's because they don't see things the way I do. I'm not sure why they don't do that. I don't know if you have any insights about this. I mean, my conversations with some of these folks, I think they – are trying to get studies up and going. And I think, as you know, in academic science research, it's a little bit slow, it's a little bit- Why don't they do them on their blogs or something? Why don't they just publish everything on a blog, but they just do it in a really rigorous way on themselves? And of one study where they control everything and then they show all the data, I would even believe a non-peer-reviewed blog article that shared everything, especially if they had pictures of everything and then they really showed. Of course, it's not peer reviewed, but it doesn't really matter if it's like that level of detail. I would be convinced. I would champion it. I would literally champion it. If somebody from their living room did those kinds of studies, I would be on social media. Like this is a challenge to anybody. I'd be on social media trying to help. And if anybody wants to do it and do this kind of study and then like have me publicize it, have me retweet it and have me retweet the results and help them out, like help them with the design, I'll do that. So anybody for for real. So... I don't know. You don't need all these other approvals. You can get your blood markers done at like, you know, through all these different companies now. Everything can be done on your own. You can purchase it all on your so. Well said. I think it's like if you're making extraordinary claims, which some of these people are, yeah, I think you put it quite nicely. Like you don't necessarily need to go through the full academic IRB, get some funding or whatnot. Solid N equals one. It'd be awesome not to because you'd be like kind of a, a maverick. It'd be pathbreaking. Literally, I think so. It'd be a kind of a new event within biomedical science <laughs> history. Seriously, because somebody just does all that by themselves. They bypass everything. They show a really significant scientific finding and end of one finding, but it's still significant, especially if you get a couple of people to do it. And then that would be a solid thing that 
medical science would ha- even have to deal with. Like, how do we deal with the ethics of that? That would be so cool. No, I think a lot of listeners are probably cut of that cloth, right? I think, you know, there's a lot of folks that are biohackery that probably, you know, if folks are out there, take Kevin up on his offer, right? He has a big platform out there. So track the data, maybe ask for, post a quick question out, like, what are the markers that you think are yeah. table stakes? And let's, you know, control it. I think that would be valuable for the conversation. I'll champion it, yeah. That's just science. It's like, okay, run experiments, get data. And then I think we can speculate around smoking guns all day long, but if there's no new data, it's hard to move the conversation forward. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned something interesting around believing in epidemiology. So I, I think that's that doesn't have to be a controversial statement. I think there's clearly a lot of people that have spent their careers studying and running epidemiology studies. So maybe we unpack that statement a little bit around what is the role of epidemiology in public health policy? I think one of the potential recurring themes is epidemiology as a hypothesis. It's something that can make causal claims. Um, that's kind of my initial position. Like there's clearly good statisticians and researchers who looked at all the potential corrections and data cleanup to get some useful associations from that data. What is your view on epidemiology? You know, what do you think people might have over discounted or under discounted of the field? It's important to understand what we're using epidemiology for. So let's first talk about what science is and let's talk about what nutrition science is. And I think that will really help to clarify the question of what we're using epidemiology for. So people might have heard of Karl Popper. So Karl Popper's idea is that science is a hypothesis generation and then trying to test or falsify that hypothesis. Yep. And if you cannot falsify a hypothesis, then it's not part of science because you can't do an experiment. It's just an idea and it's not a, formally a part of science. So yeah. let's talk about what nutrition science is. I think it's worth unpacking a little bit because I think a yeah. lot of string field, some people are claiming to be not necessarily scientific. Like no one knows how to test the hypothesis of 11 dimensions. People are trying to generate testable hypotheses based on some of these very, very esoteric physics models. But I think that's like a very interesting parallel with at certain areas of intersection and philosophy and like finding truth. I think you put it quite nicely, the, the Popperian uh, model, like it needs to be testable. It needs to be disprovable through experiment to be considered science. Otherwise, like a faith claim. Yes. Or it's like metaphysics or philosophy or yep. something outside of science and we shouldn't treat it as science. Cool. Yeah. So, but about nutrition science, like nutrition science is some of it's not science according to this definition. So it's very easy to see why, right? Well, eating a vegan diet versus a carnivore diet, <laughs> <laughs> which one is going to lead to better longevity over the lifespan? Obviously you can't test that directly because in order to do that, you'd have to put two people inside of a room they have to live there or house and they'd have to control everything their entire lives. So make sure that they always eat the carnivore or the vegan diet, um, make sure calories are controlled. Like, so maybe one person is going to eat a lot more calories or at least you'd have to track the calories. Right. And then you'd have to make sure that they're all exposed to similar exposures. But if you did it over five or 10 years, you randomize people to a vegan or a carnivore diet you couldn't be sure that they actually ate the vegan or carnivore diet over those five or 10 years. And so you couldn't be sure that's what you're actually doing. So it sounds like the nuance you're trying to make here is that 
although you could theoretically run experiment to test the hypothesis of vegan versus carnivore for longevity, it's not practical. And it's like not likely practical. So it's yeah, like- it's like funding issue. It's like, not only is it hard to do that and hard to be sure that it's a funding issue, who's going to fund it. So yes, from practical point of view, you can't actually test that hypothesis. And in fact, you can't practically test most of many of the hypotheses between diet and disease or lifestyle and disease. It's a ton of confounders, right? It's just like... We just can't test anything. And so some people say, okay, that's fine because we can still use epidemiology to help us to understand. So we can't directly test these things, but we can, you know, use epidemiology. We can use other forms of indirect evidence. So people say that we've used that for smoking, for example. We used animal models. We characterized the different effects of different um, carcinogens. We used epidemiology. The problem with using just epidemiology and those other models for nutrition is that nutrition doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same risk associated with it. So for smoking, it was like 40 fold increased risk, whereas with food, it's like 10% increased risk, right. right? So it's still not the same. It's not very clear. It's very hard to explain away the confounders with smoking, but it's very easy to explain away the confounders with nutrition. So because we only have indirect evidence with many hypotheses in nutrition, we can't practically get test hypotheses directly. In some sense, we could say that those areas of nutrition are pseudoscience because according to the Popperian view, they're not testable from a practical point of view, right? Right. They haven't been tested. So then what are we even doing, even looking at these areas where we can't directly test anything? Well, what we're doing is, is we're adding indirect evidence and we're accumulating indirect evidence for different ideas, but not directly testing. Well, why are we doing that if we can't directly test? The reason is, is if we cannot directly test, this is the best we can do. So it's not that we're trying to formally test hypotheses in many areas of diet disease relationships in nutrition science. We're just trying to come to a better understanding of what perhaps is more likely. And why is this important? Because Compared to other areas of science, so for example, physics, if you're going to go build a rocket ship, you can make a theory, you can test the theory, eventually you can cut away until you get the set of theories that you need in order to build a rocket ship and go to the moon. Or you can choose not to do that and not to do any of that science at all. But with nutrition, it's different because we have to eat something. Because we have to eat something one way or the other, we want science one way or the other, even if it's going to be not good enough. We don't have a choice. Yep. It's not like giving a drug. It's not like building a rocket ship. It's not like these things we can choose. We, we have to choose something. So we want some information, whether or not it's strictly speaking, formally testing the scientific hypothesis. So my argument is, is that in nutrition science, it should really be called approaching nutrition from a systematic and formal, from a systematic and formal perspective without necessarily directly formally testing hypotheses and then asking the question, what is the weight of the evidence? So looking at epidemiology from that point of view, I think that slightly can change the way we look at epidemiology because we also have to look at it, animal models, short-term biomarker studies, mm -hmm. all these other different ways of indirectly approaching the question. We have to say either they're all pseudoscience or they can all inform our hypothesis in a way that isn't necessarily, strictly speaking, formally scientific. Okay, so um, with epidemiology, here's the, the other factor. Always in nutrition science, we're almost always in nutrition science when we start to go out, like, is epidemiology legitimate to admit the overall picture? Almost always, especially in this area, we're almost always going to be talking about plants and animal foods. 
So is it okay to eat meat or not? So given that caveat about epidemiology and why epidemiology can actually fit into a, a way of exploring different issues because every bit of evidence is going to be imperfect. Given that, the reason I think the epidemiology findings with respect to plants are important is that each time we do an epidemiology study, it's very uncommon that we find that the meat eaters, the people who eat more meat, beat out the people who eat more plants. Almost always it's the other way around. Now there's other kinds of studies that have been done. For example, people talk about people who go to health food stores, they look at the omnivores versus the vegetarians. They saw that the omnivores and vegetarians had very similar health outcomes. Therefore, it's not the plants that are causing most vegetarians to live longer. It's actually the fact that they're more health conscious. And if you take somebody who's equally health conscious, then you'll get a similar result. Yeah. So there's those studies too that are important. And I think that's a common one is a, an Asian population where higher meat uh, yes. consumption associated with longer longevity. So I think this is the, where the confounding argument is like complicated, where it's like, okay, I think you can make a fair argument within the Western context when you're yeah. eating meat, you're eating beer, French fries, Coca-Cola with it. And what are you actually measuring? So I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think there's like valid critique on epidemiology, just like epidemiology generates some signal. But I think the interpretation is very, very tricky. Exactly. So I'm arguing that we should admit epidemiology to the picture. And then the next argument would be, since we're just trying to get the best perspective we can, we're just trying to do the best we can, then we just basically need to hash out and, and look at what are the details of the individual epidemiology studies. So in the case of the, it was a Japanese study, right? My understanding is that it was like in the mid, it was it was published in like 2006 or something like that. Um, do you know? I, not off the top of my head. I think it's like 2006 or something like that. And the cohort started in like the 1960s. If I'm wrong, somebody call me out and I'll retweet it because I don't want to be spreading stuff that's not true because this is an important. Actually, this is a really important issue. So my guess is that meat consumption in that case, there's also kind of a healthy user bias, right? It's that maybe more affluent people who could afford it, who had higher quality diets, or maybe even just having a low quality diet and then adding meat onto it right? And like that kind of context might be good, right? Yep. So I mean, it could be healthy user bias in that respect, more affluent people, or it could be that people were relatively poor during that period of time. Japan was still coming back from World War II, blah, blah, blah. So then the question is, is, okay, can we take that study and take the other studies and make sense of them overall? It's a really important question. Actually, let's keep talking about that Japanese study because I don't have a conclusive response to that. And I don't feel 100% confident about the sort of counter argument that I made. But it's good that we're able to start talking about the arguments and counter arguments. Most Western studies have shown that meat is associated with worse outcomes. And there's the Eric study I thought was really interesting. It also showed that the animal based low carbohydrate score diets, so they ranked each diet according to the animal, how much it was animal based and low carbohydrate. If you looked at the different quintiles, because they had five different quintiles. If you look at the different quintiles for soda consumption, you'd see that there's like a sevenfold difference between the upper quintile and the lower quintile, and it was linear increase. Mm -hmm. So what that suggested to me is many people might say, oh, well, the reason that they're low carbohydrate is they're just eating burgers and they're eating other junk food all the time because junk food is, a, is very high in fat. So it's actually just a junk food diet. But if you actually look at those quintiles of soft drink consumption, it really looks like there's a substantial amount of of intentional reduction of intake. Actually, like the number of soft drinks in the lowest quintile was like 0.25, like um, like a quarter of a drink per day. So I can't actually fully exhaustively discuss these studies in the next like two minutes. So what I'll just say is like, 
this is controversial, but it's an important discussion to be had because from the point of view of epidemiology, not necessarily, you know, it's not, doesn't formally test hypotheses, but it can still add to our weight of evidence. We still need to be talking about epidemiology and these sorts of questions. So, yeah, again, I don't think there's like an evil Illuminati of researchers who have spent their career studying statistics and epidemiology are trying to just fool people. I don't think that is the case. I think there is fair critique around confounding both ways, right? I think you make a very good argument where like, I think people that are pro meat pick at the vegan argument of epidemiology. I think it's very fair to say, yeah, yeah. like if it is 1960s and this is like a post-war Japanese society, then yeah, there's probably confounding factor. If you have access to meat, you're probably of an upper class if like everyone's a substance farmer. So there's definitely like a, yeah, an inverse healthy user bias, which I think is an interesting counterpoint. And I think to me like, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily discount epidemiology either. But I think it is like, how do you put it within the full context of the body of evidence? And I think even short-term biomarker studies give us a lens to look at these problems, right? Like four-week, six-week, eight-week studies, you know, two-year studies for Verda Health with their ketogenic diet, these seem tractable, these seem reasonable. And I think we can be science-driven about it, even though we can't necessarily test the gold standard, like holy grail experiment of putting, you know, everyone in the same condition for a hundred years, tracking calorie count, tracking activity, tracking job stress, tra tracking spouse stress or whatnot, right? Like there's the infinite variables of, of human life that will confound. So while that is not implementable, in reality, what is the closest proxies to that? And I, I'm still very hopeful that there is still scientific endeavors and scientific experiments to be run to help bring us to public policy type decisions or education decisions, what I think is important with the nutrition space, because we can't just say, eh, screw it. Like we don't know how the universe started. No, this is like people are making decisions regardless if they're proactively making decisions or just passively consuming what is this around us. One of the things that why I'm excited about, you know, why I spend time in this space is that it is one of the most important things that we can control that affects our health, right? Like the food we do eat, the things that we, we do on a day-to-day -day basis drive a lot of the conditions for chronic disease and sort of that health span. Yeah, that's why I think plants are good. It's epidemiology, it's short-term biomarker studies, it's our theories of why disease happens. And so if you can maintain a healthy body weight and uh, replace some of the animal products with more plant products, there's a decent amount of probabilistic evidence, I think, leans in the direction of animal products being good. But a lot of that stuff could be misleading us as well. Yeah, Zill just posted a, a quick link on, on the side panel here that is a Japanese and Korean study. So you're right. I guess you, get, you have half the population. Yeah. I don't see the years, but it was tracking folks for six to 15 years I don't see when the data collection started. And I think another caveat for a lot of these food survey questions is that I think there's a valid critique around how are people really tracking this stuff? Because I think, I don't know if you've seen food surveys, but like I'm somewhat thoughtful, but like I can't remember what I ate a month ago in terms of like I eat six eggs or three eggs that week. It's like, it, it gets kind of tough to, to trust data fidelity there. But again, maybe you assume a normal distribution of errors and there's some signal there. And I think, again, statisticians have techniques to try to correct for sampling bias, but yeah. it's nuanced, right? I don't think it's like, oh, these people are just naive to think that a food survey is 100% correct. 
And yes. I think they have techniques to try to correct for that. But I think there is a subtle argument around, is it a normal distribution or is it distributed in like a specific way that we don't understand yet? Totally. There's that issue as well. There's some really interesting validation studies on this that I'll share with you afterward because yeah. I didn't actually prepare to talk about them and haven't looked at them in a while. But there's like this one study where they put people in this apartment, they put hidden cameras all around it, and they actually have like some guy who came into their apartment and collected everything while they were asleep and they didn't even know he was there. And then they compared the like self-report of those people, both whenever they didn't know anything was there, yeah. then they actually revealed that there were cameras hidden so that they like knew the cameras that were there. And then like compared it to what the the guy saw originally like i'm not even explaining the study well but it was it's a hilarious study that they did in europe and it was published recently and it sort of shines some light on some of these validation issues do people report and how do they misreport and how do they report whenever they're observed versus not observed they know they're reserved or not observed and all these other things cool we've covered a broad gamut here i think it might be nice to kind of wrap up around future direction i mean look you're, you're super prolific i think i know it takes a lot of time just to be up to speed on the common debates that's happening on social media while you're full-time executing a PhD thesis. So what's in store for you, whether that's like public talks? I know you've been doing more podcasts recently. Do you plan on you know, keeping heads down with wrapping up the PhD? Do you plan on giving talks that people can attend in, the, in 2020? What are the big things happening in your life in 2020? Yeah, running more. My back is getting better. So I'm able to do more and more volume. I know it's nothing compared to you. I think you do like quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I think I broke 40 miles last month, which was really good for me. I've been really held up from that because of my back. And yeah. I started about six months ago. So I really want to have like a month next year. So one of my resolutions I have like a month next year where I do like 160 in a month. That would be so cool. So that's, um, that's one of the things I want to do. Hopefully, I don't spend too much time on social media or blogging anymore. I really need to, I do need to wrap it up and, uh, you know, I'll keep doing it though because it's my thing. And so I'll keep doing that and then I'll keep doing podcasts. I think there might be a conference. I don't know what the official title is, but it's like called like not crazy keto conference or something like that. That's what it's <laughs> going to be called. Yeah. And, uh, it's still kind of an idea in the making. I think people want to do it in Virginia maybe Charlottesville. It's very funny because that was where those like protests and riots are. So maybe there's going to be a bunch of like carnivores and vegans show up and it's going to get rowdy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, we're thinking about doing something like that. And then I need to finish the PhD, honestly. If In, in optimal conditions, I would just be focusing 100% on the PhD, like nonstop. I can't. I need some sort of balance. So I'll be doing a little bit of running. I'll be doing a little bit of jujitsu. I'll be doing a little bit of blogging. And But most of the time, I want to focus on... Uh, finishing up because uh, got to move on to the finishing up the medical training and then moving on to residency. Time to get going, getting old. So Yeah, I mean, it's a long pipeline, man. No, credit to you for doing good work there. So people can find you. Your blog is and your social handles. Where do people find you to stay in touch? So my blog is Nutritional Revolution. That's like nutrition all and so AL, Nutritional Revolution with an R, dot uh, org. And then the uh, Twitter handle is uh, Kevin in Bass. And uh, come find me on Twitter. Ask questions. If you want to do NF1s and get some ideas about how to do them, that would be great. And if you want to talk nutrition, comment. It would be awesome. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. No, it was a fun conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, 
visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.